Our sermon text is Genesis 9. Genesis chapter 9. I made a mistake here. I meant to include the very end of chapter 8. So, let me grab the New King James. So, we'll pick up at the end of chapter uh, 8. And then continue into chapter 9. So starting in verse 20 of chapter 8. This is God's holy word, so let's give it all our attention now. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer and day and night shall not cease. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely, for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud. And I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh 
that is on the earth. Now, the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And our New Testament reading Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 through 15. Hebrews 9, 13 through 15. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Thanks be to God for His Word. Let's pray now. Lord, your word is food and drink to us. We pray you give us the spiritual appetite for it. And Lord, we pray that it would uh, nourish us. Lord, we pray that our sin would not uh, get in the way of being strengthened and nourished by your word. The distractions would not get in the way of being, uh, being filled and satisfied and helped by your word. So by your Spirit, Lord, make us ready to receive it, ready to believe it, ready to live according to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So often we hear faith talked about as though it's the source of its own strength. Um, As though um, faith itself is the point of faith. This is ingrained into the way our culture thinks about faith. Right? Don't stop believing. Hold on to that feeling. Right? That's what faith is, according to a lot of people. Uh, it doesn't matter what you're believing in. The point is not the object of your faith, but the faith itself. Just believe something. Feel convicted about something. Have strong feelings about something. That's the point for so many. Of course, it's uh, really not true, is it? Right? That um, It's not that the that the, what you believe in doesn't matter. It's just, you know, faith needs to be strong. It doesn't matter what it's in. 
Um, if, I have, if I have faith in a weak chair, it doesn't matter how strong my faith is, the chair is not going to hold me up. Right? But if I have weak faith, even in a strong chair, you know, that, will, that will hold. So the subject, uh, I mean, excuse me, the object of our faith matters. And this is the Bible's understanding of faith, isn't it? It's, it's that um, our faith is, it needs to be resting in something firm. The hymn puts it so well, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Faith's not a blind leap in the dark. It's not shutting your eyes and against all odds and, and all evidence, jumping and hoping you fly. Right? That's not faith. Faith is a eyes wide open, carefully considered conviction that God is true. And his promises are true and reliable. We need a firm foundation for our faith, right? There's all these uncertainties in life, all these difficulties, all these trials. We need something solid to anchor to, some bedrock to build our lives on. And this is what God is talking to us about in Genesis chapter 9. This is what he's giving to Noah in Genesis chapter 9, isn't it? The flood has just happened. I mean... The world was just destroyed by the wrath of God. And Noah comes off the ark. His family steps off the ark. And, and what are they feeling, do you think? Perhaps, right, relief that they're finally off the ark. But how fragile and uncertain things might have seemed to them. Right? The Lord has brought us through this, but there's only eight of us in this whole wide world. What are we going to depend on? So, God gives them something to anchor their lives on. He makes a covenant with them. He doesn't do this for himself, does he? The Lord does not need to make a covenant with Noah to make sure that he continues his faithfulness to Noah. He'll be faithful, but he condescends to Noah to make a covenant with him to bolster his faith, to give him peace, to give him assurance, to give him comfort, to give him encouragement that he will be faithful, that, that Noah's survival and salvation does not rest in Noah's righteousness and faithfulness, but in the Lord's sovereign grace and his promise. The Lord is giving these promises to Noah to strengthen his faith, and he's giving them to us as well to strengthen our faith, giving us something immovable to build our lives on, something to firm up the foundations underneath us, to show us that we can trust his promise. He gives us here a promise to preserve his creation and a promise to preserve his people until, through Christ, he brings us to the new creation. We'll work through the text here under three, three headings. And again, we're starting back in chapter 8, verse 20. So let's, let's, our, first, our first heading tonight is peace. Peace. It's, this is chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. What's the first thing God does for Noah after, they, uh, after Noah and his family get off the ark? Well, the first thing he does is he assures Noah of the fact that he is at peace with him. This is the essence of what's going on in verses 20 to 22 there. The Lord is assuring Noah and his family that they have peace with God. So verse 20, we read there that Noah builds an altar to the Lord. And here we find out the reason why uh, Noah was commanded not to bring two of every animal, but to bring seven of some, uh, seven of the clean animals, so that he's able to make this sacrifice. 
after, after he comes off the ark. So Noah takes some of these animals and he offers them up as a burnt offering. The whole animal consumed, burnt up. Now, the point of the sacrifice here seems, seems clear. God has just poured out his wrath, hasn't he, on a wicked world. He's made sinners pay the price for their sins. And his wrath has been satisfied. But there's a problem because there are still eight sinners, aren't there? Whose sin has not been paid for, in a sense. Right? Wrath hasn't come on Noah and his family. They're still sinners, aren't they? They didn't avoid the flood because they didn't deserve God's wrath. They did, just like everyone else did, deserve for God to pour out his judgment on them. They deserve to be drowned in the flood like everybody else. But they weren't. And so here they are, and as they come off the ark, I think they're aware of this. Noah clearly is. None is righteous. No, not one. Noah knows that for himself. And so what does he do? He knows that, that the wage of sin is death. So the first thing he does, he builds an altar, offers a sacrifice to God. He's saying, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And I know my family are sinners. We deserve your wrath. So receive this sacrifice in our place. The Lord responds in verses 21 to 22, smells the aroma of the sacrifice. It's a soothing aroma, the text says. Right? He's satisfied with it. He's pleased by it. He recognizes Noah's not trusting in his own good works. Noah's trusting in my grace and my mercy. He smiles on Noah. And then he says, uh, not, uh, it doesn't seem like he says this to Noah. The text seems to suggest he says this to himself. He says, I'll never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of his heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. He says this in response to Noah's sacrifice. Right? Uh, he, he agrees not to count uh, Noah's sins against him, but to count it to the substitute. And he, he agrees to uh, not condemn the world until the last judgment, but to sustain it. But of course, this substitute, right? What's this substitute that Noah offers? It's just some animals. We've got to think about that for a second, don't we, right? Um, in order to be a sacrifice to be sufficient... It has to be uh, equal to the thing it's being sacrificed for. So the sacrifice that Noah and his family needs is not some sheep, some goats, and some pigeons, is it? But they need a sacrifice of a man in their place. Uh, they, they, need, uh, 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 they need Jesus Christ himself, don't they? And this altar that Noah builds and the sacrifice he makes is pointing us forward exactly to that. Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain, laid on the altar for our sakes so that God's wrath falls on Him and doesn't fall on us. And so this is the first great promise, isn't it, that our lives need to be built on, that that firm foundation we started out by talking about. That Jesus Christ is my burnt offering. I should have been there, drowned in the flood. He took my place. I should have been on the altar, burned up. He took my place. And it's, it's that sense that I have peace with God that Noah is, Noah is enjoying here in these first verses, uh, these, excuse me, these last verses of chapter 8. As he gets off the ark, he's offering the sacrifice and enjoying the sense that I have peace with God. And that's the foundation for his faith here. And it is for us, too, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the, the great bedrock of our confidence. 
in the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, Horatio Spafford, the author, brings this idea to bear, right? He's writing this hymn. You probably know the story. Um, after, after uh, I believe, his daughters were drowned on a, on a trip across the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, he's writing about the peace that we find with God, that, that foundation of peace we find with God. And there in the hymn, he writes this very thing. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. It's this foundational thing that brings him peace, even in this great loss. I have peace with God. And that can't be changed. God is for me. He's not against me. No wrath left for me. And this is the basis of all God's promises and blessings to us. So this is the foundation of Noah's faith, and it ought to be for us also. But there's more. The Lord goes on now to speak to Noah directly, and he promises to preserve him. So our second heading is preservation. Uh, Chapter 9, verses 1 through 17 here. Preservation. Again, put yourself in Noah's shoes. Um, things must seem quite uncertain coming, coming off the ark, looking at this strange world. Uh, Noah's witnessed something that is hard for us to imagine, right? Uh, something on the level of like a nuclear holocaust. Right? The whole world has been wiped out. He's just witnessed the wrath of God bring about the most destructive event in history. And it's and it's it's a catastrophic catastrophic event that's happened, and yes, he has this comfort from God that right he remembers God brought me through it all, but God is gracious to him and wants to give him more, and so God speaks a word of blessing to him, a word of blessing to Noah, and first of all in verses one to seven we see God bless Noah and his sons by establishing them in this new creation. Right? There's this clear echo here of Genesis uh, chapters 1 and 2. God, is, God is, is, is giving Noah and his sons a mandate to multiply in the creation, use the creation, care for the creation, fill the creation, and establish justice in the creation. It's so uh, right, reminiscent of what God does for Adam. Places this man in this new world that's, uh, that's been cleansed of sin and um, tells him to do the same thing he told Adam to do. First of all, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, to, full, to fill the earth and have dominion over everything in it. Again, God's starting a new creation here with Noah and his family. He wants Noah's descendants to fill it. The world was made for this, to be filled with image bearers of God, caring for his creation and bringing glory to God uh, through it. God wants this world filled. He wants it filled with families. He wants it filled with people who are praising him, who are enjoying using his creation, studying it, uh, being creative with it, and worshiping him in it. But sin has not negated the mandate that God gave Adam uh, there in Genesis chapter 1. Right? That mandate to fill the earth and subdue it. It's carried on here in this uh, creation after the flood. It still applies. The second thing God does, he tells Noah that he's provided food for him. So he gives him this mandate. Here's what your task is, Noah. Same as it was for Adam. And now he says, in the second place, he says that God is, God is God's promising to provide food for him. Plants and animals as well. He's saying there's going to be no lack for you, Noah, in this new creation I've made. Uh, uh, I've, I've called you to, to this 
task of filling the earth and multiplying in it, and I'm going to provide for you to do that. So he gives him food to eat. Um, differently from, from before, he's, he's now giving his approval for him to eat meat. Uh, so showing that it's not a, a sin for him to do that. So God provides for his, his physical needs in this creation, and then he establishes order and justice in this creation. And here's a distinction, isn't there, between this, uh, this episode with Noah and Genesis 1, where God creates Adam. In Genesis 1, there's no sin yet. There's no need to say, by the way, if you murder somebody, um, there should be the death penalty. Right? That's not on the, the radar yet. But here, in Genesis 9, God knows that the flood is not dealt definitively with sin. Sin's going to continue. And one of the key sins that um, brought about the flood in the first place was violence. And God is putting a, putting a check on that here. Um, he says here that, uh, that he gives man authority for capital punishment. Um, man may be fallen, sinful, but he still bears God's image. And so to attack another human being is to attack God's own image, and it deserves death in response. So this is the biblical ground, isn't it, for, for continuing the death penalty. Now we should be careful with it, shouldn't apply it recklessly, we should take every care to make sure it's only uh, carried out in cases where there's, ab- where there, where there's, where there's, where there's certainty. But it shows us here that God takes this seriously because he values his image in man that every human life carries. All of this, God giving the mandate, God providing for their needs, God, trying, God establishing order um, and putting these checks on sin. What's it all for? Well, it's, to make, it's to help life flourish in this new world after the flood. It's, it's to cause life to be preserved. And then, going on, in the next section, 8 through 17, we see God continue this. Right, he, he's trying to, he, his goal here is to preserve life, to preserve the covenant line. And now he goes on, 8 to 17, to do this through a covenant with Noah. Um, the word covenant is key in this passage. It's used seven times. In these verses here, in this section, covenant, of course, a key word in Scripture used seven times here to show us uh, just how vital and important this is. All the focus here is on God's promise to man to provide for him and preserve and promote uh, uh, life for him. A few things we should consider here about this covenant of preservation that God makes with Noah. The first thing that the text draws our attention to is who is making the covenant. Verse 9 says, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you. If you translated the Hebrew a little more literally, you could get this. Now I, behold, I establish my covenant with you. God is putting emphasis on what? On himself. On me. On I, he's saying. I am the one establishing this covenant with you, Noah. He wants Noah and his sons to pay attention to this. God is the one making this covenant. Why is it so important for us to remember that? Because everything depends on this. A promise is only as good as the person who makes it, as the trustworthiness of the person who's promising, promising that thing to you. This is, this is the bedrock of our faith, isn't it? Who has made these promises? God has. Every promise He makes is true. 
He can't lie. He can't break His Word. Everything He does, everything He promises will come to pass. And God is, God is saying, Noah, pay attention to this. I'm the one making the promise. Rest on that. Remember who I am and rest in that. The author of the Hebrews, Hebrews 6, 17-18 makes this same point here. He's talking about God's promise to Abraham, but the same principle applies to His promise to Noah. He says, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That's our foundation. God is the one who's promised these things to us. Second thing we see here is who God makes this covenant with. So God is the one making the promise. He's making this promise, this covenant with Noah and his sons. And then it goes on to say in verse 10, with every living creature that's with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. He repeats this thought, this thought several times throughout the section, ending in verse 17 by saying, this is the sign of the covenant which I've established between me and all the flesh that's on the earth. We need to think through this carefully. Um, uh, what, what, is God making a covenant here of saving grace or of common grace? It's God's covenant here with Noah a covenant that's for the whole world, not, not specific to his covenant people, but a covenant that's, that's showing his, his common grace that goes out to everybody. You know, he makes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust alike. That's his common grace. What, what's the nature of this covenant that God's making here? Um, we, we look at the other covenants in Scripture. Covenant with Abraham, Moses, David. All those covenants are clearly specific to God's elect people, right? They're, they're, they're covenants that are about saving grace. What about this one here? Well, it's not as clear, right? Because we see both, both things here, right? On the one hand, we see some marks here that this is a covenant of God's saving grace. How does it start? It starts with a sacrifice. It starts with a substitute for sin. This looks like a covenant being sealed in blood with God's covenant people. Uh, it's a covenant that God makes with Noah. And Noah, of course, is the representative of the godly seed, the godly line. He's, he's the representative here of God's covenant people. And the essence of it is that God is going to preserve, continue to protect and preserve this line of promise from which the Lord Jesus, the Savior, will come. So it looks, in many ways, like a covenant with that's uh, with this, the elect people of God. But it also is somewhat different from the other covenants God makes, isn't it? Right? There are marks of this covenant that, that look different from the covenant with Abraham or, or Moses or David. And we see this, right, because the covenant includes the whole earth. It's a covenant to Noah and his sons. It's a covenant with the animals. It's a covenant with the whole creation, every living thing. So it seems clear it's a covenant that encompasses the whole earth. Those who are saved and those who aren't. Those who receive saving grace and those who receive only common grace. 
I think the best way then, if we've got to hold both these things together. Scripture says, right, it, it has elements of this, elements of this. I think we have to say, well, it includes, in some ways, it's, it's both. There's an overlapping going on here. That, that it's a covenant that God makes not to destroy the world by a flood. He's promising, I'm never again going to destroy this earth with a flood. It's a covenant where He promises to show grace to sinners who will never repent and never turn to Him in faith. So it is a covenant of His common grace. All right, He's promising here His patience. That He is going to wait for thousands of years and be long-suffering with sin. Unrepentant sin. He's showing grace to the whole world. But why is He doing it? He's doing it for His people. Doing it for his elect. Doing it for those he loves, right? In that special saving sense. That, um, that he is showing common grace, yes, to the whole world, but he's doing it for the sake of the saving grace he's going to show his elect. He's preserving this world so that he can preserve his covenant people in the midst of it, all the way to the new creation. He's promising Noah and everyone who is part of the covenant family with Noah, including us tonight, that he will keep us He'll preserve us and He'll preserve the world that we're in all the way until He brings about that new creation in Christ. So this is another layer, isn't it? Right? We've been talking about what's our comfort? What's our faith resting on? What's the foundation? This is another layer to the bedrock that we anchor to. God is not going to forget us. He's not going to bring judgment before it's time for Him to. He will keep us and preserve us. He'll keep and preserve the world around us and sustain His creation until we come to that point where Christ does return. The third thing we see here is the sign of the covenant in verse 13. God says in verse 13, I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. As one commentator puts it, a covenant sign is like a billboard, right? Telling you, look here. Here's a reality that it's pointing you to. It's a big flashing neon sign pointing to God's promise. God gives the rainbow for this covenant sign. Why a rainbow? Well, one reason seems clear, because rainbows show up when it rains. And if you've just been in a world destroyed in a flood, and you see clouds gathering, and you see a storm breaking, it's scary, isn't it? But then there's a rainbow. And you remember, God promised He's not going to destroy the world in a flood again. Right? So there's, there's comfort, there's assurance for them there. God says, when you see the clouds, and you see the rain coming, don't fear, Noah. I'm not going to destroy the earth, I promised. Remember, here's the rainbow to remind you of that promise. There's another reason I think God uses the rainbow as a sign here. Um, a rainbow is shaped like a bow. In fact, the Hebrew word here for rainbow is bow. It's the same word that's used for a bow, like a bow and arrows used in war. Um, and in the pagan religions around Israel, the pagan mythologies around Israel, the imagery of the gods uh, fighting one another or judging humanity with a bow is very common and frequent. In fact, there's, there's one legend in which the god Marduk defeats his enemy with a bow and then hangs his bow in the sky and it becomes a constellation in the sky. And oftentimes in Genesis, we see some of these parallels with these false religions. 
right? Showing the author, Moses, saying, those are cheap knockoffs. Here's the true reality. And I think we're getting a picture here very similar to this. that God has used his bow to judge the earth. He's brought his wrath, his judgment on the earth. But what's he doing now? He's putting his bow up. See, it's not, I'm, I'm, it's not judgment time now. I'm hanging up the bow. I'm not going to destroy the world through a flood again. But it's, it's a reminder to us that he... So when we see the rainbow, same promise, isn't it? Reminder to us that, that God is not going to judge the world until the last day. That he's going to wait until then. To the elect, though, to, to those in the covenant of grace, it's a reminder of something else, too, related to this. It's a reminder that God has already poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ. And he's hung up his bow. The arrows are spent. None left for those in Christ. Even the final judgment that will one day come is not a threat to the believer because the wrath of God has been satisfied. And if he has done this for us, won't he make sure that we persevere? Won't he make sure that he, he'll, he'll be sure to keep us and guard us all the way to that new creation? All right. Final thing here is promise, our third heading, promise, verses 18 through 29 here of chapter 9. So we've seen peace, we've seen preservation, now promise, verses 18 to 29. Last section of the chapter here. We've seen all these parallels so far between Noah and Adam, right? Uh, God is sort of establishing a new creation here in Noah. Noah's very much a, a new Adam kind of figure. But unfortunately, the similarities continue. And we see these here. No sooner do we read of God making this covenant with Noah and blessing him in all these ways than what do we see Noah do? He sins. He gets drunk and he falls into sin. Shamefully drunk. He's naked in his tent. Right? And it's just a harsh reminder to us that the flood did not cure sin, didn't solve the, the problem of sin. Um, sin is still there. Even in righteous Noah, Noah is not righteous enough to be the savior of the world. Or this, is, this should be a warning to us, shouldn't it? This is so often how, how temptation works. All through the year in the ark, Noah appears to have been faithful. Right through the intense trial, he holds firm, he's faithful. Once the trial ends, God's blessing comes. That's when he falls. A warning, right, to us. He's not alone in his sin. Just like Cain exacerbated Adam's sin, so Noah's son, Ham, exacerbates his father's sin. Ham goes in, sees his father there naked in the tent, and instead of honoring him, he dishonors him. He mocks him. The text is ambiguous here. It doesn't say much, but it seems clear that whatever Ham does, it's a shocking breach of conduct and a huge shame to his father that instead of honoring him as a son should, he has dishonored him. And then he goes out of the tent and he invites his brothers to come in and mock their father too. His brothers refuse. They carefully cover up their father, protecting and preserving his honor as sons should honor a father. Noah finds out what happens. And the result is that Ham is cursed and the other sons, Shem and Japheth, are blessed. Uh, the curse on, on Ham and his descendants is that he is going to be made to serve his brothers. What's happening here is that we're seeing, yes, the line of promise has been preserved, 
The line of the serpent's being preserved too. The final battle hasn't been fought yet. All right, we saw that trace through the early chapters of Genesis after God's promise to, to, uh, uh, to the serpent that, that he was going to raise up a seed from the woman who would crush the serpent's head. We've been tracing that conflict. And here it is again already after the flood in Genesis 9. Uh, there's no blessing for Ham. He's, he's going to be enslaved to his brothers. The blessing that Shem and Japheth receive is that the Lord himself will be their God. Again, God's promise to preserve his people. But then finally, the passage ends, and it ends with Noah's death. If you remember, Noah's name uh, means something like rest, and it was, uh, um, he, he, he was looked to, right? His father gave him that name in the hope that he would bring some measure of rest, and he does. But it's not final, right? At the end of the story, Noah dies. What, what are we to make of all this, right? Why end this account of Noah and the flood? And, right, we had all this, this, this wonderful encouragement through the promises and the covenant that God makes and the rainbow. Why then end the story like this? By the way, Noah sinned and Noah died, right? Who would end a story like that? What's the point? Well, the point is that we need a better Noah, don't we? Right? We need a better Adam, We need one who will come and bring full rest, who won't just bring a repeat of the first creation, but actually bring the new creation where sin is fully and finally dealt with and death is fully and finally overcome. And there won't even be the possibility of sin anymore. And when people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, Shem's line, Ham's line, and Japheth's line, all of them will come and worship uh, and find rest in Jesus Christ. And this is finally the place where our faith rests, isn't it? We read this story and we see it's not in Noah, but it's in the one Noah's life points forward to, even in his failure, to our Savior, our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, for all the rich variety of it, and how all of it points us to the only sufficient Savior, and the one who is our firm foundation. Lord, may our faith rest in Jesus Christ, in his power to save us, in his sufficiency to save us. Lord, may we take every promise that is yes and amen in him to heart, and Lord, grant us the peace and the rest and the assurance and the joy and the comfort that all these promises are designed to give. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.